Hey, what's going on? Thanks for checking out the podcast. I'm super excited for you to listen to the episode today. Before we get into that, though, my name is Jason. You can call me J-Bay. You're listening to Blissful Prospecting. And this podcast is to help sales reps and sales leaders land more meetings with their ideal clients. So if you're sending cold emails, you're making cold calls, you're hitting up people on LinkedIn, hopefully you're not doing a connect and pitch or pitch slapping people, as we call it. But if you're doing any of those sort of things and you're looking to get better results, you're definitely in the right place. Let's get to the episode today. Super excited for our guest today. One of the things that we're going to be talking about that, you know, I encounter a lot with just with the clients that we work with is kind of this question of, you know, how much autonomy you know, do we give our reps? And I've managed a lot of salespeople in my day. And the very first sales management position I had was in College Works Painting. When I was a sophomore in college, I was in charge of a couple dozen salespeople that would go door to door and sell house painting services. And I also had to teach them a lot of other things too, you know, how to kind of market their business, how to hire people, how to hire painters, that sort of stuff. But sales was a really big part of that. And they had a lot of systems and a lot of really actually great training for us as managers to give to our interns. And we called them interns because it was like a college, kind of a part-time college thing. One of the things that I constantly battled, though, was if someone wasn't doing a very good job and their closing rate wasn't as high as it needed to be. So with what we were selling, house painting typically costs three to $10,000. It's a decent deal size for a consumer sale. And closing rates, the average closing rate was around 30%. And really, the really good people would have a closing rate of around 50%. So when they met with a homeowner and did an estimate, Basically, one out of every four to one out of every two, you would want to close. So if someone wasn't in that range and they weren't following the step-by-step guide of how we recommended doing an estimate, to be frank, it was fucking frustrating (laughs) for me. So, and a lot of sales leaders that I talk to now are kind of in that position, especially with, you know, prospecting, where if someone's unable to get appointments and they're not, you know, kind of saying the things you recommend or using your email templates, it can be very frustrating. And what our guest today, Jeff Swan, is going to talk about, so he runs a company called RevUp, and he's just got a couple of decades of experience leading sales teams and doing all kinds of different positions from marketing and sales to now at RevUp, really helping companies build badass sequences. He is going to talk about, well, once you have a sequence, like how much should reps be customizing that sequence versus you giving them stuff? And he also has a really cool story he's going to share around one of his best reps that he's ever had at prospecting, how he just gave him autonomy to actually do a little bit more of what he wanted to do instead of following the script in the book. And that's kind of the internal balance that we need to find as sales leaders. So today we're going to be talking about sequencing. So the, you know, the basics and how to block and tackle sequencing from a management perspective and how to set this up for your team. We're going to talk about continuous optimization. So once you have something set up, you're probably not going to hit it out of the park the very first time you try that sequence. So how do we refine and test and A-B test and all that other stuff? I'll give you a hint. It's not as hard as you think. And then lastly, what we're going to talk about is autonomy. So how do you think about the autonomy that you give your reps and how much autonomy should they have versus sort of following the playbook, so to speak? So I think you're really going to dig this one. If those are any of the topics that you're thinking about right now, you're really going to dig this interview with Jeff. And before I get into that, 
I would love to know what you think about this leader series. This is the third episode in the series that we're doing that's focused more on sales managers and sales leaders. And I'd love to know with a quick review on iTunes. So if you're listening to this on your podcast on your iPhone, if you just go to the podcast app, type in Wolfsful Prospecting, and you might be listening through that app anyways, if you just scroll to the bottom and leave a short, honest review, it would really help to get more people like Jeff on the show and then also to get this in front of more people like yourself. So I'd really appreciate if you leave a short, honest review. It would really mean a lot to me. And without further ado, let's get to the interview. Uh, so in just doing some research on you, it just looks like you have such a diverse like career background, but you've done a lot of different things and started multiple businesses and that sort of stuff. Why of all things, like a sequencing, is, it's like the hardest part of the game, like prospecting. Why focus on helping people with sequences? Well, uh, Jay, thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I do have a diverse background. I know. Um, the thing about sequencing and it, the, I love a great challenge. I mean, you might be able to tell by some of the businesses I've started, but um, I think that it's the biggest problem out there that people go out there and they buy templates and they get this awesome training from somebody and then it works for like a month and then they're just, okay, what's happening? Now, suddenly I did like 50 meetings last month. I'm doing 10 this month. What's going on? So it's a huge problem that people to build consistent pipeline, you either have to be exceptional or have an exceptional team behind you and like a system in place that just works all the time. And we were talking just before this, how, that doesn't exist, right? Like something that just works all the time. Yeah. So I love the idea of, how can I say this? Just giving somebody the tools and the capabilities of consistently improving upon what they're doing. And I love data and I love testing. And what I do with sequences, is I take a very kind of analytical, almost scientific approach to it, where I give people like a baseline of this works. This has worked and this works for people in your industry and your customer base, that kind of stuff. And then I work with them to actually develop a continuous optimization process where they're constantly learning, they're constantly growing, and they're constantly putting up better numbers than the week before or the month before. And for me, like I'm a data nerd yeah. in every one of my businesses, every one of my jobs, roles, whatever, I have really focused on the data and let that drive my decisions. Um, and, uh, this sequences gives you so much rich data that I'm just like, I'm, I'm really stoked. <laughs> I want to dig into uh, autonomy with you because I think around sequencing, one of the big things that I hear in the companies I work with is like, I kind of see a couple different scenarios. One is like, it's extremely rigid with a company. Like they don't allow people to customize the emails at all. They don't even allow them to personalize them. It's just use the merge tags. Right. Yeah. I see that extreme. And then the other extreme I see is complete autonomy, where there's like no direction provided at all. Here's outreach, set up your templates, get after it, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. How do you think about just as a leader? And I'm curious what you've seen just in the last, what, decade and a half or a couple decades doing this. How do you think about how much autonomy to give the people that are like executing this stuff? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I've made mistakes myself in the past. I used to believe in rigid processes. Rigid processes turn into yeah. successful teams. And if you trust in the process, you're going to be successful. And what I didn't realize as a younger manager is that I didn't take into the human component is that mm -hmm. there are certain people that just don't fit into a mold. And so if you're trying to make them fit into a system that even if it works, they're just not the people built for it. And you're actually holding them back from doing something that could be way better than your system. Yeah. 
So as an example, I had one employee a, a few years back where he was an exceptional person. He'd already run a charity. He just had this amazing smarts and creativity about him. And I tried to fit him into this process that I know worked. And the rest of my team killed it. They were doing awesome. Well, probably about 60% of them were killing it and smashing their quotas, doing great. 20% were kind of just getting by, struggling to fit the process, but like they were doing it and whatever else. Then another 20% of the team, including this gentleman I'm talking about, they completely rejected, weren't doing good at all, weren't putting up pipeline, were angry at me, notably would talk back in meetings and, and all this stuff. And I, I recognized that, okay, this isn't a him problem. This is a me problem. Mm. I'm like, I'm the leader and I'm not leading him properly. What I'm trying to do is manage him. So from like an operational perspective, and it made me really rethink of how I actually looked at the way that I manage sales development teams and just people in general is that I look first. Now I look at the human component. What kind of people do you have? The challenger sale, I'm sure you've read it, has a great little concept about this where you have, you know, lone wolves and you have people pleasers and relationship builders and, and all these things. And the cool thing about the challenger sale was that it was saying that Let's say, for example, Jason, you're not a lone wolf. You might have lone wolf capabilities, right? You might be a challenger or you might have a lot of challenger traits. And what I recognized was that I was trying to teach people a system that was based off of the challenger sale as an example and really focusing on that because I know it works. But somebody else might be a really killer relationship builder and they just crush it by doing that. Then I'm, I'm doing them a disservice by putting them into this mode. Even though the stats say that this works, it doesn't necessarily mean the people that are using the system are, are going to actually do it effectively if they're not built for it. Okay. So I'm very into, because I go to therapy, I've been going to therapy for a couple of years now. So I'm very curious in the psychology around control and like relinquishing control. <laughs> I've been definitely been a control freak <laughs> for sure, especially because when we started Blissful Prospecting, my wife, Sarah, doesn't work in the business now, but when we started, we were kind of doing done for you stuff where we were creating campaigns and running them for people. And she's like, dude, you're the least fun person to work with, man. <laughs> like, dude, just let me take care of my shit and you do your stuff. Like, you don't need to control everything. There doesn't need to be a freaking step-by-step -step system that I follow every single day. I'm like, I'm getting this done. Yeah. You mentioned that there's like, hey, there's like these 20% of reps that didn't fit into the mold or the system. How did you sort of let go your ego around that? Because that's something that I think a lot of sales leaders deal with, especially if someone's not performing. Well, it's like, you know, you're not following the system, dude. Yeah. If you just did this, yeah. it would perform. So how did you kind of let go of the ego part of it? Seriously, I don't meditate, but it was similar to meditation. <laughs> I have this thing that I built over the years where I kind of do like a refocus in the middle of something that I'm doing usually wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just so you know, like I'm also a boxing trainer. And one of the things that one of my, my earlier trainers taught me was that when you're in the ring, you're running out of breath, you take a quick, like double breath. Yeah. And then you reset. And surprisingly, when your adrenaline's going and everything, that quick double breath actually gives you the oxygen you need without using your system too much. Okay. And yeah, the best part about that though, is it just resets you. So you can actually focus on the task at hand, right? And so I took that kind of lesson into my business world. And I said, I'm recognizing if I'm having a conversation, for example, I'm having a one-on-one -on -one with a rep who's not really seeing eye to eye with my system. You know, I'm thinking in my mind, he's just not running the process. If he ran the process, he would do it. He would trust it. 
he would trust me and he would just be really good. Right. But then I recognized that, you know, no matter what I say to this person, no matter how I, he's not going to hear what I'm saying until he sees it himself. And I also recognize that he's also the type of person that he's not going to recognize what I'm saying until he does it himself. Right. And so I recognize that I could either force the guy to do it, use my power, which is really not a good way to go. That's not a way to inspire people to do well. I could let him do whatever he wanted and not advise him at all. Or I could rethink of how I'm approaching the situation and still get him to kind of run some form of the process, you know, the parts that work, but at the same time, let him find his way there. So what I actually did was from a practical perspective is I spoke with him and I said, okay, this is a process that I know works. We're showing improvements across the entire board. About 80% of the team is either at quota or killing it with this process. So it's working. So he has the data. He knows that with this customer, with our solution, with everything, this works. But clearly this isn't working for you. What I'd like to do is run some tests with you. And I'd like to test your approach. And I want you to find out creative ways that you can do do your prospecting and get out there and do stuff, read books. I gave him a couple of books. He grabbed his own books and he found creative ways to do prospecting that were literally better than my system. Okay. And so through this test, we both agreed we're peers here. We're partners. We're doing this together and we're going to find a better way to do prospecting. So by Q3, so the same team by Q3, we were crushing it. Our quota was 1 million for the quarter. We did 1.63. Because this guy ended up, I think he booked probably half to two thirds of the pipeline himself. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was a great way for me to kind of like recognize where my ego was coming into play, recognize even where my analytical mind and the proof of what was right was right in front of my face. But recognizing that um, I didn't want to let this guy go. I didn't want this guy to quit. I thought he was a really valuable asset. Yeah. So I worked with him to develop a, an even better system that was his design instead of mine. Yeah. So yeah, that's an ego trip, but it worked. <laughs> well, there's some major empathy there too, because I mean, if you think about, dude, no rep doesn't want to like not hit quota. I mean, dude, people don't want to get fired. So usually they're not doing that on purpose and they're trying the system and it's not working for them. And then they feel like someone's trying to dictate how it should be done. It's, I mean, it's, you know, the oldest sales lesson in the book that they've actually proven now that they can actually study psychology and behavioral science is the, you know, the people buy based on emotion and justify with logic. Well, it turns out that's pretty real. It's like, logically, this system works really well and you're saying it works for everyone else, but it's not working for him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so like how, where's this person coming from? And yeah. I'm glad you're a boxing trainer. Cause I was going to use, I follow mixed martial arts and I, I did kickboxing. Well, I guess it was Muay Thai. Yeah. For a couple of years and I didn't do it professionally or anything like that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm somewhat familiar, but I think you know, an appropriate analogy with this is like, dude, any UFC fighter that goes in there and has a game plan and they've worked with their coaches, if they didn't adapt on the fly, they would get their ass kicked. You need to be able to adapt a little bit and work outside of the framework and the system. Yeah. Is there anything else around like autonomy? Like what do you see being the balance of how much the company controls what people are saying in their sequences versus the own individual autonomy. What do you recommend a company do when they're thinking about how to kind of find that balance? I'm going to go back to data again, because mm -hmm. 
I could throw out a random number that might work for you know my clients or your clients or, or whatever else, but it's not necessarily going to work for every company. And every company has a different process, team, customer base, whatever. So what I like to do, this works consistently for everybody, is I look at the data to continuously optimize your core brand messaging. So if you think about it, crossing the line from marketing to sales, uh, which I've done over my career, back and forth, back and forth, in marketing, you sit in a boardroom with you know the whole team and you talk for hours to develop your unique value proposition, your brand value statement, right? You do that careful consideration. You get it looked over by product marketing and, and the CEO and, and legal and, and whatever else to make sure everything is just airtight and perfect, right? Yep. And then you try to apply that to the sales reps and they're like, oh, wait, so that worked great last week. Now it doesn't work. You know, I'm trying something different. It's different when you're on the ground. It's different when you're actually out there using the statements that are available. Yeah. And every sales call you make, every message you send, every response you get back from a customer, every post that you see from your customer or prospect on LinkedIn or, or social media about what you did, <laughs> you know, a lot of SDRs are getting that lately. Everything teaches you how to actually message, how to adapt on the fly and how to improve. So when you're developing a system for your team, you need to make sure that you give a framework for continuous learning and continuous optimization so that you're allowing them, even though within this framework that, hey, maybe our brand statement needs to be held to 60%, but they can adjust accordingly to fit that particular person or that particular post or, or whatever else. And you need to find out using the data how much of your brand, your core brand message needs to be there and how much of that personalization about the prospect has to be there. So I'm sorry, I didn't have a very clear and concise answer there, but the bottom line is if I'm going to sum it all up is that I find that balance through testing yeah. and I assign my entire team. I get my entire team to come around and to be my people on the ground to help make sure that that carefully crafted brand message actually works on the field. So it sounds like the balance that you're striking there is like, as a company, you do need to provide some stuff to your team. <laughs> Don't let them completely wing it, Yeah. but then also be open to like allowing them to kind of customize it and that sort of stuff. And so you've talked a lot about data. Mm. What are the data points that you were thinking about when it comes to sequencing? And let's kind of talk as if someone doesn't know anything about this at all, Yeah. because... I mean, something even as basic as like how many prospects would you need to run through a sequence in order to have enough data points? Like even basic stuff like that, I think is really good to visit. But yeah. from a data standpoint, what are you measuring? How do you think about it? How do you set up these tests and that sort of stuff? For sure. Yeah. So first and foremost, what I want to do is measure that there is a response from what you're doing. So for people that actually don't know anything about sequencing at all, sales sequences are essentially a series of emails, phones, social media, and other touch points with your prospects in a coordinated series of events in order to actually get people to respond to your sales message. And what I see is that, you know, there's tons of stats out there that says, you know, people don't even respond until your third or fourth touch. I've seen other stats that say people don't respond to anything past four. So I don't like to quote specific stats. It's very situational. But what I like to look at is, are people actually responding to what you're sending? Are you getting any response at all? That's the first stage. Number two, 
are you getting a positive response? Because if the responses that you're getting back are no, never leave me alone, unsubscribe, then that's not the response you want. It's not like PR. There is such a thing as bad press. Yeah. <laughs> and all you're doing is inspiring unsubscribes, then you don't want to do that. So then what I want to do is I look at, I like to look at link tracking. If you do have links in your prospecting emails, um, I like to see what people are clicking on and how often they're clicking on it. For example, a lot of people like to give resources as part of their prospecting, maybe videos, that kind of stuff. If somebody's clicking your video like 50 times on a particular topic, then you know that topic is something important. If it's just one person, I don't really look at that. I look at that as an outlier. Okay, maybe this person really likes to talk about, I don't know, email personalization or something. Mm -hmm. But if it's a trend that you look across your team, if you use a tool like Vidyard as an example, and you're able to actually track the video opens across your team, then you're able to see that videos on this particular topic outperform videos on this particular topic. And so then what we do is we actually coach our team to really focus around this, explore this messaging in really depth and then make inferences of what type of content you want to put. From there, I like to, again, do optimization sessions for your messaging and take this data on what types of content and really optimize each stage of the message. So like, I like to test different things. I like to do different tests. So like, for example, I'll test the opening liner for one email and we'll test the different opening liners. Everything else remains the same subject, body, call to action, whatever else. And if people respond more positively to this opening liner versus another, then we'll add that to our database, our templates, and ask people to kind of use that. So I think that, yeah, the most important data points, I guess, for me are positive responses and book meetings, to sum it up. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's important because there's a lot of, you know, sort of vanity metrics. I mean, you come from marketing. I have a marketing background as well, where it's like you get excited. Oh, 80 percent open rate, yeah. you know, 15 percent reply rate. And then you look into that as well. It's like, well, actually, of that 15 percent, 14 of the 15 percent is negative. Yeah. You know, we're sort of kind of neutral where it's like, oh, OK, cool. Thanks for reaching out, you know, kind of thing like that. Yeah. What about in terms of sample size? Yeah. Because I do want to get into the optimization with you. Yeah. How many data points do you need before you actually change something? So coming from the marketing background, I used to send a million emails in a day, you know, or hundreds of thousands. Yeah. So I used to have so much of a sample size that within one campaign, I could tell you exactly what works and what doesn't. Yeah. In sales, you don't really have that luxury. And if you are sending out that many emails a day, you are a spammer. Yeah. <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> so um, what I like to say is I think you should be able to make some decent, with combining intuition and experience, you should be able to make some decent inferences after about 100 prospects. Yeah. I'm more comfortable when you hit to 300 prospects. That's when you can really talk about making changes, but hundred can be done given the fact that you don't want to send out like tons and tons of emails every day, but yeah, you should be good. But if you can get to 300 before you make changes, I think you should have a pretty good idea of what's working. So with this hundred, would it be isolated into like one sequence targeted at one type of prospect in one type of ideal client profile? Like, is it isolated like that or would it be across multiple? Yes. So I would suggest doing it as you described, one customer, one sequence going that way, running a hundred people through that sequence, particularly. Yeah. 
And then if you can get, I would even almost say like per template, you know, like per AB test, you'd want to run a hundred people through that test. Yeah. So if, for example, you're testing email two of a four email sequence, I would want a hundred people to go through email two yeah. before I make any inferences. Got it. Okay. As you know, there is drop off, you know, there's drop off, right? So like you want to make sure that you're running enough people through the whole sequence that that particular template gets the data. Yeah, I think that's another underlooked part too, where it's like people will send out 10 emails to 10 different prospects and you know, no one responds to that. So they start changing all kinds of different stuff. You know, it's like, I don't know, that could be a bad batch of 10, you know, because uh, I don't know in your experience, but if you have a response rate in the double digits, you're doing all right. Yeah. You know, if you're able to get a 15, 20% response rate, that's kind of on the higher end of typically what I see with emails. Oh, yeah. So that means 80% of the people plus are not responding to what you're sending, you know, so it's kind of the hard part also about emails. It's so hard to get feedback on stuff that's not working like you can over the phone, you know, because you can ask people questions and they can share stuff. And so if we look at sequencing, what are the sort of fundamentals of sequencing that you look at in terms of, you know, number of touches, the mix between phone and email? And I know it probably changes depending on the customer and, you know, what they're selling and that sort of stuff. But how do you kind of think about the fundamentals of what goes into the sequence? I look at several factors, but I like to start with the customer. Mm -hmm. So if you know that your customer is in a, let's say a high noise field. Mm -hmm. So let's say, for example, if I'm going after marketers or sales professionals, I know that they're getting a lot of noise. I know that they're getting um, tons of emails, tons of LinkedIn posts, tons of like everything every day. So I know that my sequence is going to have to be loud to be, to be heard. So when I'm going after somebody like them, I want to do a high touch sequence. Yeah. I want to do a heavy, you know, first two, three weeks. And then I want to taper off a little bit. I've seen one sequence as, as long as 60 days for an actual full on sales sequence, which is pretty crazy. But I like to stick with two to three weeks for a cycle. I call it a cycle because you're going to re-engage every 90 days or so mm -hmm. or whatever time frame you feel is appropriate. If you're looking at kind of like my aggregate best of the best across everything that I've ever done. A three-week sequence, about 12 to 14 touches, a mix of probably half calls, then emails and social touches after that. So a three-week intense nurture after that, and then either a 60-day or 90-day re-engagement cycle where I'm going back into that intense three-week nurture or sales sequence. I've heard this from a mentor of mine previously. It's called, you know, annoy them into talking to you. I take that seriously where you have to make noise to be heard and you have to find out what that actual, like the true actual annoying is versus helpful and then peel it back so that you're just before actually being annoying, you're actually just being persistent and helpful. Love it. So I definitely do something very similar. Three weeks, I usually do somewhere between 12 and 14 touches, good mix of phone, email, that sort of stuff. I love this concept of thinking about if it's a high noise, you know, sort of industry or persona too, where you need to make more noise, yeah. you know, to that person. Because I know that this seems really basic because we've been talking about 12 to 14 touches for years now, but still most of what I see is people sending two or three emails, making one or two calls and they completely stop. Yeah. So when you think about how the channels work with each other, is there anything that you're taking in consideration like, for example, when you leave a voicemail, do you mention, hey, I just sent you an email. Here's the subject line. Like, how do you create sort of like that omni-channel experience for the prospect that's receiving the sequence? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So I've actually tested this on several different customers. One, there's two approaches that work, I find, Mm -hmm. is that one where you treat each channel kind of independently, where, for example, the LinkedIn user has a different expectation of the platform versus like Instagram, as an example, versus email versus phone. And so you kind of treat it as this unique channel where it has its own kind of rules and its own set of engagement. So a practical way of, of thinking about this is like on LinkedIn, I might reference LinkedIn on LinkedIn and say, hey, Jason, that post you did this morning on the fails from last year was freaking amazing. I loved it. And here's what I thought, right? And then on the phone, I don't know if I'm going to go into the LinkedIn post. I'm going to maybe just go into what I think you're feeling that right now and what pains you might be feeling and really exploring that problem and seeing how I can kind of connect with you. So like they're quite separate, right? Like they're a separate conversation almost. But then there's other companies and there's other teams where making sure that I call it the breadcrumb approach, where I'm thinking of, I want to tell Jason a story. And I'm thinking about the different aspects of that story. And I'm thinking of where each aspect of that fits from a channel perspective and from a sequence perspective. And so then, yeah, when I'm leaving a voicemail, I'm going to say, hey, Jason, I just shot a connection on LinkedIn, would love to connect. Then I might say something like, you can probably come up with a million better stories on your own, but basically just making sure that each touch tells a little bit more of the story, references the previous post and kind of keeps telling that story until you've reached the conclusion. You'd be like, well, that's my story. <laughs> yeah. I really like that second approach because I find from the prospect's perspective, it it does create that story. And it also like, yeah, I always tell reps, like think about the people you're reaching out to in these executive positions. They're literally getting a hundred plus cold emails per week. Some of these people you're trying to reach out to at a fortune 500. Yeah. So when you send random emails and leave random voicemails and you don't connect them together, how are they or their assistant possibly going to know that all of this is coming from the same person? So it doesn't really like you can send the 12 to 14 touches, but it doesn't really create that same effect in marketing. Back in the day, we called it the rule of seven, right? The people needed to see your ad seven times. It doesn't really create that like branding, like awareness, you know, type of thing. With sequences, are there any other... I hate using the word hacks, but that's that's the thing that comes to mind. Are there any other sort of quick hitting things around sequences that you find working pretty well that's like, hey, here, here's a technique that if you just started doing this, it probably would increase the reply rate or pickup rate of your calls or anything like that? Yeah, well, you know, I've been seeing a lot about this. There's so many people talking about like personalization and relevancy. And it, it seems like there's almost like a debate that's not really public about personalization versus relevancy. I hate this. Well, <laughs> It's not necessarily a hack. It's something that you've said and and a million other people say, but like when you really truly focus on developing your list for customers that you know will actually benefit from your solution, and then you perform research where you're actually learning specific things about them that is relevant to what you do, you can be horrible at messaging. Well, not horrible, but you don't really have to be that good at the actual sequence itself. If you really know your customer and you really find specific details that are relevant to your solution, and I'll preface this in, in a second, but when you start with actual good research and you're able to research your prospect and find things that are relevant to them and to your solution, you start that, that first impression that they get is so strong that like, I don't know, it beats everything else that you do. And what I'm going to say is why I say this and why I say this is like not a hack, but not a hack is that 
I can tell you. So on my Twitter, I, I have, I like kickboxing or boxing, hockey and something else, right? But I've had that for years. And I used to get prospecting emails all the time that were like, hey, Jeff, I saw you. You really like hockey. Those Canucks are awesome, right? Then into their sales pitch, right? So like what they did was they looked at my Twitter handle, which is like, I don't know, 100 and something characters. And they inferred that, oh, I like hockey. So you have to mention the Canucks because they lived in Vancouver. P.S. I hate the Canucks. I'm a Flyers fan. Like, I don't like them. <laughs> okay. But like, they assumed that because I said hockey and I live in Vancouver, that I like Vancouver Canucks. Right. And then they went into something completely unrelated, like completely unrelated. So it's not necessarily a hack. It's more of like a fix. When you're doing your research, when you're doing your personalization, don't just do something random that is not relevant to what you're selling and what you're trying to make somebody believe or, or think differently. Make sure that when you do research, you're doing something that connects with your messaging and connects with what you're trying to get them to think, say, or do. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because I feel like we're getting into semantics at this point with personalization and relevance and like all this other stuff. It's like, dude, personalization, relevance, it's just like, what are the extra parts you add to the message that are not a part of the template? Like, that's all it is. All it is. Yeah. <laughs> and I love what you said there, too, about it, making sure it's connected and not some sort of random thing. How do you think about how much of the sequence needs to be personalized for that prospect? You know, I did a lot of work in uh, ABM, so account-based, mm -hmm. account-based sales and whatever else over the last few years. And um what I've always done really is I've looked at my target market and I've looked at who are my top prospects, who are the ones that I'm going to spend the most time on. And I don't care if it's hundred percent custom because those are the companies that if you closed one or two, you could make your whole quota for the year. Right. Yeah. So if you take three hours to do an email, I don't care because to me, that's something that's really important. That is a top end client. If you really show that extra, you put in that extra work and get the deal you're literally making your entire quota for the year, right? Most of your customers aren't like that. And if you spend, you know, three hours per email on every one of your prospects, you're not going to hit your numbers. Like it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So then when you look at kind of your B prospects, as I call them, I like to do pretty much close to like 70 to 80% templated and then 20 to 30% personalized. Again, with the semantics, you can say relevant to personalized, whatever you want to say, but like things that you customize on that message, yeah. right? And then if you're talking like your C customers, the ones that, hey, it'd be great if they sold, they bought your product, but they're not necessarily going to be, you know, a top customer or provide a lot of revenue, then I'd be happy with like even a 95% templated in all honesty, maybe even a hundred if, if, uh, yeah. if you can get away with it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's really important to think about kind of the differences between them and, you know, having kind of like these dream clients, like these A priority people segmented differently from some of the other stuff. Mm -hmm. What about like if we kind of shift into this optimization piece, you call it continuous optimization, which I think is like the key with sequencing. I don't, I don't know about you. I rarely hit it out of the park with the very first attempt at a sequence. It usually requires a lot of ongoing adjustment. Um, how do you think about continuous optimization and like what does that you know, kind of process look like? Sure. Yeah, no, great question. This is obviously something that's a huge passion of mine. I agree with you, Jake, is that like rarely do you ever hit it out of the park on the first run. If you talk to every single person out there that's selling, the way that they become successful is through continuous testing. They just don't necessarily have a, a process to follow. Yep. They just kind of go out there and do things and hope it sticks and kind of run, right? So what I do is I think like a developer. So are you familiar with the Agile framework? Yeah, my wife used to work in products, so I'm familiar with it. Don't test me on it. 
<laughs> okay. So my product people out there, please forgive me. I'm probably going to butcher this, but <laughs> the thing that I took away from the agile framework is that you work within sprints. Yeah. So they work within two weeks. What can we accomplish in that two week period? And then they finish it. They do a retrospective and then they do another sprint. So I take that same approach with sequencing. And I've done this, like I said, I used to send millions of emails a day. I've done this since I started my career in email marketing and I do it now in, in sales. So I look at it. What are we trying to accomplish over the next week, two week or four week period, right? And we set objectives. We set specific tests that we're doing. So like I was saying before, we're going to test the first line. We're going to test the subject line. We're going to test the call to action, the offer. As an example, a test might be, do I want to ask for a specific time? Do I want to ask for a specific date? Do I want to pop my calendar link in there? Like These are types of things that you can do on your call to action, right? Do I even want to ask for a meeting or do I want to ask for a reply or something like that, right? So what I'll do is I'll say, okay, over this sprint, we're going to test subject lines and we're going to test subject lines across whatever sequence, okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to meet at least once a week to talk about what worked, what didn't, and look at the data, you know, like what worked, what didn't, and what we're going to do better the next time. And so this is actually built in. So instead of just doing this ad hoc and, you know, like pulling a Salesforce report or an outreach report and like, oh, finding something cool to think about and then making a change. No, like I build this into the process where it's, it's consistent sprints. You're consistently trying to run these tests and give them time to run and, and actually make inferences and see it work. And then I get constant feedback from the people running the test. So as an example, it'll be the SDR who's actually running the sequence or uh, the AE that's running the sequence, et cetera, et cetera. And they're going to give me practical feedback on how did the call go? What type of responses are you getting? What is the sentiment of the replies that you're getting? That kind of stuff. And then we're going to take that data to finish off our tests. So at the end of each, I'm going to call it again, sprint, we're going to have test data. So hard data that says this works better than that. We're going to have qualitative data. So we're going to have qualitative feedback. So this is what our customers said. If we're lucky enough to have something like Gong or Chorus or whatever, we're going to have actual recordings of the calls, right? So we're going to know the exact phrasing that people respond to. And then we're also going to have just our own intuition. So based on what we've learned, based on the data, based on our experience, what have we learned? How are we going to make this better for the next round? So what is the next test we're going to run based on what we've learned in this sprint? I love this. So when we're testing things, because you have your control, right? And it's like, here's the sequence that I was using before. How do you determine how much to test at a time? So like, are you testing the subject line call to action, all this stuff at the same time in that two week sprint? Or how many ex different experiments are you doing within that sprint? And like, I think this is a really important part that gets like really overlooked. Yeah, so this is the interesting thing is that it, it really depends on the length of your sprint, right? Because remember what I said earlier about sample size is that you want to make sure that you're having at least 100 for each test. And I don't believe in doing like multivariate testing because it's so difficult to make inferences of what was it the subject line? Was it the open line or was it the CPA, right? I believe in one thing at a time. Um, and this goes, you'll, you'll also learn this about me with, the, with, with my messaging as well in that breadcrumb story approach that I was talking about, I only believe in one thing, one message, one call to action per message, per touch, okay? And so I believe that, let's say, for example, you're typically sending out 
adding 10 prospects a day to your sequence, right? Like each rep is adding 10 prospects a day to a sequence. Then we want to have a sample size of 100. We want that sprint to be 200 or sorry, two weeks. And we're not going to get the test data back until two weeks when we're actually we're going to run. But then again, hold on, sorry. No, because we're talking a three-week sequence. So we're talking five weeks, basically. We want to make that sprint for that particular test five weeks. So like when you A-B test, is it like, hey, I'm going to send 100 with like control and then 100 with a new thing? Or are you testing that new thing during the entire time with everything? I'm testing it the whole time. So I don't know about what you use, but I use Outreach that actually has A-B testing built into each message. So I actually, I message on the fly and I might run several tests, like A-B tests within the messaging of a sequence. Yeah. But I'm going to run it one way through the whole thing as a, a literal split. So yeah, it's basically all through one sequence, just using the tools. If you don't have the tools, it gets a little bit dicey. It gets a little more difficult. But uh, using the tools, it's kind of a breeze. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like 50-50. So half the outreach is going to get this test. The other half of the outreach is going to get my old. And that's another detail I think that's really important because when people change stuff, you go through and change everything about something and then you test it. And then you could miss out on two or three weeks of appointments because the new stuff doesn't perform as well as, as what was getting appointments before. You know, 100%. Interesting. And that's actually the key though, right? Is that if you're doing this by yourself, like if you're a one person team, then you don't necessarily want to do like a test. So the control should be what's working today. Yep. So like, let's say, for example, I have a sequence that's working. It's getting my 20% responses, most of them positive, that kind of thing. I don't want to mess with that. What I want to do is use that as the control and then to test the new version against that. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. One more question on this topic, and I know this is going to depend on a lot of factors, but from a results standpoint, how do you know if something is actually working well or not? So like, how do you measure like whether or not a sequence is performing well? You mentioned like positive replies yeah. and, you know, meeting set, like that sort of stuff. But what is a good conversion rate of number of people I emailed that scheduled a meeting, like, how do you know if something is good? This is like really, really hard to really kind of find. And I have some opinions on this, but again, it kind of ranges depending on like what you're selling. Yeah. But what do you consider good, a good performing sequence? What are the KPI? I'm going to say like getting away from numbers because everybody has a different idea of what number works. What I think is a good performing sequence is one that consistently produces the results that you want, not that you want, sorry, but it's predictable. So as an example, even if you get 1% booked meeting rate on a sequence, it's not, not the best, but like if you can, every time you put a hundred people through there, you're going to get a meeting. To me, that's a successful sequence. Yeah. If you run 10 people through to get a meeting way better, <laughs> right? Yeah. But like the point is about predictability is if you have a sequence that consistently book, books meetings for you, which is the whole point of outbound and a whole point of sequences, then you have a, a successful, a good running sequence. Now, I'm going to add a quick wrinkle here, Jason, just because I've, I've kind of owned the whole funnel for the majority of my career. So a quick wrinkle is as much as we want to book meetings and get those meetings turned into ops or whatever, if you're consistently booking meetings that don't turn into anything, you know, don't turn into actual closed revenue, you're not going to keep your team around very long, Yeah. <laughs> right? So if you're a sales development manager, you need to work very closely with the sales manager to make sure that you're sending them the right meetings, that the qualification criteria is correct, and that when you do that handoff, that the AE on the other end really fully 
understands the difference between this type of lead versus let's say an inbound or a referral and is able to actually manage that opportunity effectively. Because what I see as a failure point for so many BDR teams or outbound teams is that the AEs get them and they're like, hey, this is, sure, this is the prospect I wanted, but they're not qualified. (laughs) Yeah. Right. They're not qualified. So you basically have to get a system that they know what to do with that qualification and do something differently is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Yeah. And that's like a something we could talk about for another hour, the qualification piece. <laughs> Dude, this is awesome, Jeff. Appreciate you coming in and sharing everything. I learned a lot from this conversation. Where can people connect with you? You got some cool stuff going on. Where can people find more out about you? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jason. I love this conversation. It's great talking to you. If you're looking to get your sequence optimized or even just to learn this approach, you can go to RevUp90.com. And even at the top of the page, there's a Get Started button. And you can actually submit the sequence that you are running currently and maybe not getting the response that you want. And we'll actually review and optimize it for you. So we have several different ways we do that. But one of those is a free way through our regular event called Sequence Practice, which Jason was on last month, where we actually review sequences live on the air. And we actually handpick from people who go through that get started form. So yeah, go to RevUp90.com, submit your sequence. And who knows, you might just see yours on the next Sequence Practice event. That was a fun one. One of my big takeaways from that is I love this conversation around autonomy and like how to really think about that and really how with sequencing to look at, you know what, the most important thing is like positive responses at the end of the day. Are people responding? Are they responding in a positive way? And that's really the only metric that matters with your sequences. And being a little open to actually allowing people to have a little bit of autonomy around what they say and allowing them to customize it and also allowing them to come up with something that might be better. Because let's face it, as sales leaders, we're not the ones out there every single day doing the prospecting. Our reps are on the ground. It says this is every hour of their workday they're spent talking to or trying to talk to prospects. So give them some autonomy. And again, before you take off, would love to hear what you think of this series. So leave a short, honest review on iTunes. Let me know what you think. I'd really appreciate it. Subscribe, share, all that good stuff. And thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.